0: The Tapes is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. The Tapes is part of the Poddojo Network.
1: Hi there, I'm uh, Steve Clamp, I'm a TV presenter, is I guess how most people would know me in my professional life, and I've been doing that, wow, since I was, I think, 19, I'm 45 now, so it's a bit, bit of a, a fog to remember about that long. I started in uh, children's TV, but all that time I was actually uh, presenting kids' shows on, on TV, I was actually at uh, college studying journalism. The, the kid stuff was actually huge fun, but I always knew it wouldn't last very long because you've got to be very young. So I was always looking to the next thing and I was always loved news, loved sport and uh, started to chase avenues that way and, and bit by bit managed to get my foot in the door of, of that industry, which is so exciting with, with the tight deadlines we work on and everything. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been very lucky really with my career. Lots of more luck than skill probably, but uh, I worked for, for Chelsea Football Club for Manchester United uh, for Sky Sports, uh, for the BBC, which was uh, a dream come true uh, when I got that role, and and then for ITV, to have worked for the two big, you know, the big broadcasters, certainly as I was growing up, BBC and ITV, with with their credentials, uh, is something I, I was very pleased I achieved and I'm very proud of that and I work for ITV now on their news programs, mostly doing stuff for the Midlands region, ITV News Central, so to any listeners who uh, who are from that patch, do tune in, six o'clock, weekdays. Uh, I mostly do the sport, but I also present the program quite often when our, our other presenters aren't around, and it's a great team, and I think we do uh, a good show, and obviously it's been a really interesting couple of years with the pandemic. That's really my professional life in a nutshell. I'm also a dad with uh, with three kids, uh, two of them who are old enough to try and get into my other and um, uh, my other joys which are uh, music and uh, James Bond and Doctor Who uh, I've got a, a three-year-old as well she's not quite old enough for either of those yet uh, or any of those but she likes music she's on the music she dances a lot Bond and Doctor Who she'll have to wait for I tend to be someone who's a bit obsessed about a couple of shows and I don't really watch much else. And for me, the show when I was a young kid that that hooked me first, the one that I loved and adored was actually The A-Team. ITV, Saturdays, I think it was 5.35. It definitely followed Blockbusters because I can always remember I couldn't wait for Blockbusters to end just so the A-Team would start, and that's actually bad, because Central, who I work for now, made blockbusters. But, um, yeah, and and I absolutely loved it, and I'm such a... As a person, I'm kind of very, very calm. As my wife always says, I don't really have highs and lows, I'm just in the middle all the time. But with the A-Team as a kid, when it would come on a Saturday, I would be so excited, and I remember vividly once, and I never fell out with my parents, they were really easygoing, great parents... Uh we were out and I think they said Do you wanna to come to the shops or whatever and we'll get a burger or something while we're out. And I was like, Yeah, but will we be back in time for the A Team? Oh yeah, we'll be back in time for the A Team. Anyway, we were back two minutes late and I absolutely flipped. I mean I and that is not me. I was not the spoilt brat, I promise you. I flipped because I missed the first two minutes of the A Team. And that stood me in good stead, but then of course A the A Team got cancelled because I think it was um, deemed as too violent, even though nobody ever ever died. So I was then left with a little bit of... I didn't have a show. I didn't really watch anything. Just, you know, I I just did other stuff. I wasn't... went off TV completely. And then um, my brother had always watched Doctor Who. In fact, he would watch it when I was watching the A-Team. So we had a a small TV in my bedroom where I'd watch the A-Team. And we had the TV in the living room where he would watch Doctor Who. He's older than me. And I can remember that the A-Team used to finish first. So it was obviously on very slightly earlier. And I would go downstairs, Doctor Who would be on, and I wouldn't be in the room when it was on because it just terrified me, even though I'd never seen it. I just, I don't know why in my head, it was a scary show. And if we were doing something in the back garden, having a barbecue or whatever, I would have to get through the living room to get there. And I would sprint through so that I couldn't see any of this show that was so terrifying because I was not good at dealing with horror. And uh, I remember it was the Peter Davison era at that point because I do. I can only remember to this day glancing at the screen once and seeing Peter Davidson's doctor walking up a drive with some other characters. And many years later, I managed to work out what story it was just by seeing it on a DVD. I was like, that's that bit I saw like one second off all those years ago. So, anyway, that went on. And then I, I, he sort of got less interested with the Colin Baker era. And, but I remember him telling me, um, eventually, in 1987, oh, they're going to get a new Doctor's Night, there'll be a regeneration, do you want to watch? So we did, we tuned in, and it was the first Sylvester McCoy story, which starts with... Actually, it starts with Sylvester McCoy dressed as Colin Baker, because yeah. there'd been a bit of a fallout, and, and Colin didn't want to return, so...
0: Long week.
1: Yes, yeah, Sylvester's about a foot shorter than Colin, and, and so none of the clothes fitted properly. But I didn't know any of that. I was 11 years old, I was just watching this show. And... I can't tell you how much I loved that 25 minutes. I was absolutely blown away by this story called Time and the Rani. Yeah, where Sylvester McCoy, uh, Colin Baker regenerates into Sylvester McCoy. I thought everything about it was brilliant. I thought visually it was amazing. I thought the special effects were incredible. You know, I thought the pace was incredible. I just absolutely adored it. Now, in retrospect, that is regarded as one of the worst stories in the history of all of Doctor Who. So I figured that was a good place to start and fall in love with it, because if you like that, the rest of it is like, you know, is the cream on top of the cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was where I started. And from that moment on, I was, I was, I mean, completely sold. I absolutely adored the show and it became my obsession. You know, I've I used, to, there was a monthly magazine, actually it's still going now, Doctor Who magazine. I subscribed to that. I had to I remember because you know, kids these days who've grown up with Doctor Who being quite a big deal again. This was the opposite extreme. It it was dying out then. And you, you couldn't just turn up and buy the magazine. I do remember my local, I think it was a W. H. Smith or it might have been a John Menzies. They used to have one copy of Doctor Who magazine. So obviously if you turned up and you weren't the only other Doctor Who fan in the south of England where I lived at the time. It had gone. So I started, you know, getting them to reserve me a copy and, and I, I couldn't wait for it to to get it. And it was interesting that even as I was 11 when in 87, um, I very quickly became aware that the show was fighting for its life. And I don't really know how I became aware of that because it's pretty young to kind of be that deeply aware of, you know, bearing in mind there's no internet, so you haven't got the internet telling you something's uh, in trouble. But I was aware because I can remember being worried. If I watched a story, I loved them all. But if I watched a story and I thought, I don't think this will be received well, I would start to worry that, does that mean this will be the end of Doctor Who? I really, something that I took on board because I cared about it so deeply and so quickly. I mean, I loved it. I wasn't very happy at school, especially... By the time we got to season 25, 26, when I was starting high school and I hated, absolutely hated high school. And it was my kind of escape was to get away and just go into this world where good always won. Um, and I, yeah, I loved it. And well, there were certain things that I feel vindicated about because, of course, and I don't think a lot of it was timing. People said Sylvester McCoy at the time was a rubbish doctor and yeah he was in his first season he wasn't great I, I can look back and see that and that was partly his fault partly the writers and partly the producer where they really had no plan for him at all but by the time you get to his second and third series he's absolutely brilliant and now retrospectively you never see Sylvester McCoy regarded as the rubbish doctor do you know what I mean He's he, he, he's probably not up there with Tom Baker yet or ever will be, because, you know, that's pretty um, pretty hard to ever be better than Tom Baker. But he is regarded as one of the best, and one of the ones from one of the most interesting parts of the series' mm. history. The last two series had so many elements and layers to it. It, it. Very much... Most of Classic Who doesn't have the layers that you get in a good modern Who, Who script, if you will. You know, the sort of stuff Stephen Moffat can do with all these multi-layered stuff. But... Some of Sylvester McCoy's later stories really did, and they were really think. Suddenly, started thinking long term, and they had this amazing long term plan that was only revealed years later. But of course, it didn't happen because the series got uh, stopped in uh, in 1989. I don't want to seem unoriginal, but I do think Tom Baker is extraordinary, and 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 I say that from a point of view as he clearly wasn't my doctor. You know, I was Mm. a baby when he, uh, but I was four when he stopped. So I had real no inkling of him. But when I watch back now there is something uh, which I can only really describe as otherworldly about him. His whole performance never quite seems like he's a, he's a normal human. <laughs> and, I, and I think probably more than any of the original Doctors, he, he gets that. There's something about it, his reactions, but it, it never seems like you could do that and just seem like a bad actor. He seems like a phenomenal actor who absolutely makes this otherworldly guy seem completely natural. And you really believe that he's from another planet, even though he's got two eyes and nose, two ears, you know, he looks the same, but you don't for one minute feel like he's just a human. (laughs) He's quite extraordinary. Obviously he's got that wonderful voice as well. I think in his later years, and I think, I think he's said stuff about this too before, but he got so kind of, I'm not sure if ego is the right word, but he started to do it his way rather than the way they wanted it to be. And, and I think actually he loses some of that magic. It almost becomes too big for the role, but certainly his first three or four years, I thought he was absolutely, he is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Sylvester McCoy is, is well up there, but I do love all the others. I'm not hugely keen on Colin Baker's era as the doctor, I think, but I don't think that's really Colin Baker's fault. I think actually he he's a pretty decent actor. I think it was badly written and, mm-hmm. And some of the simple principles of making good television seem to have gone out the window. And that's probably where the damage was actually done to Doctor Who more than anything, and it just never really was able to recover from that.
0: I remember hearing the music from Sy- Sylvester McCoy's, and, all, and straight away thinking, what on earth is this? Be- feeling frightened and because it sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before. It sounded like... Space. It sounded like mystery. It sounded like s- something that, i us like say, never heard before. So sort of right off, you know, hearing that music made me kind of the hairs on the back of my neck. You know, I didn't know what to expect, and I knew that Doctor Who was. It wasn't just sci-fi. It was, it was all sorts of elements. I knew that, obviously, growing up, all oh, the Daleks. You know, everyone, you know, the stories of hiding behind Yesseti and all that kind of thing. And, For me, it was kind of those, just those really unsettling stories. And whether they are kind of overtly, you know, kind of horror influenced, but just ones that are kind of just quite... Yeah, just taking the mundane or, you know, just something that's a little bit off kilter and and really unsettling you. And also, at the heart of it, there's always a mystery. There's always something to be investigated, you know, and, and to have the story play out. And then, you know, sometimes the 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 mystery's revealed very quickly um and then it's just about kind of solving the, the you know the issues but just remember that that, that feeling of like say as soon as that, that that music played and it opened up and here he was anything could happen and that also was quite worrying because i didn't know what to expect it's like who knows is it is it actually i found you know the daleks i found that quite reassuring because i knew daleks you know can't get upstairs, obviously, later on they can. <laughs> um, it was the other stuff. They just, that the, the, I say, it, for me, it was very much the tone of those episodes. And then going back and, and then the sets. You know, people laugh at, oh, gosh, the sets are a bit wonky, aren't they? Or that, you know, that, that alien costume is, it's just bubble wrap, isn't it? That's been spray painted, But I find that actually creepier because it has, because it's... I don't know this, this as I as I kind of got older I kind of respected it because I thought you know what imagine being on that set and saying, right you've got to create a monster again right how are we gonna do this what have we got to hand you know on this limited budget right we've got bubble wrap that's new not many people have seen that right let's spray that <laughs> let's do that and that kind of that crave creativity is I think is something that I, I genuinely love but like would we talk about like the Terror of the Zygons, the the set, the inside the spaceship just feels so tactile and real and and, like if I was there I'd be terrified. It's such an an evocative memory of of hearing those sounds and seeing those clips, not necessarily remembering that this story is this and that Doctor Who did that but just the the idea of classic Doctor Who as we know it now and everything that came with it I just found incredibly unsettling so it's quite easy to try and find those unsettling stories.
1: I think the two things I'll pick up on what you said there, of which I agree with everything. I think with the the visuals, the sets and the special effects, they get a pretty bad rap because some of them are terrible. But actually, some of them are really, really good. And I think it's quite interesting with Doctor Who. You wouldn't get that with an American show like, let's take Star Trek as as the obvious comparison. You almost get a certain level of... Average with the production of Star Trek, the special effects were never bad. They always looked kind of the same. Uh, the sets were never terrible, but they all looked the same. Every planet they landed on had the same fake rocks they'd used on the last planet. Well, at least Doctor Who would go on location sometimes to a quarry. But with Doctor Who, you'd actually get his extremes. You would get really awful uh, monster design, like the, the, the bubble wrap from I think that's the Ark in Space. You're probably mm-hmm. referring to but you'd also get unbelievable set design which happens to come in that same story. Where it looks like you know they've built this whole sort of space station and and for the, you know, for the time even compared to stuff in the cinema that that looked great. And there were other other stories the uh, Sylvester McCoy's remembrance of the Daleks they 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 landed a full-size spaceship in. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw it as a kid, you know. Um obviously it didn't actually have rockets, but I mean they mm. <laughs> they flew it in with a crane, but they built the whole <laughs> ship and landed it. Mm. It looks amazing even to this day. Yeah. So it was weird how it would kind of, and even within store, one story you'd go from a stunning visual to a rubbish visual. So, but I can go quite liked that because you could see how hard they were trying yeah. with what they had. So sometimes it would really come off, and I'd be almost like cheering for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it would have been so exciting to work in that. It's almost like the ultimate school project where someone's given you yeah. an, just about enough money to make this 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 thing, but you've got to put in all the hours to make it really good. And as for the horror element, I think there's a key thing here for me. I don't deal with horror well. I'm not a big horror fan because I just simply get too scared too easily. Now, with Doctor Who, I think it gave you a comfort blanket because it did horror. It took these gothic themes. It took mystery, and it took the jump shocks. But it always gave you the knowledge that the main character, the Doctor, would survive. So I had that as a safety net, which kind of allowed me to get the thrill of horror without being so scared that I just had to turn it off, because I always knew the Doctor was there. One or two of his companions did die in the series. It was quite rare, but they did. So that, you're never quite sure how safe they were, but but, but the, the, the Doctor, at least, was continuing. I mean, I do remember watching Scream, obviously, a horror film. I think I went with a, a girl to see it at the cinema. And it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't normally go and see a film like that. But I thought... <laughs> no, I know, I didn't see the cinema. I remember I saw it on video. And I had seen thought I'd seen the trailer for Scream 2, and I thought Drew Barrymore was in that trailer. So I absolutely thought Drew Barrymore survived this film. <laughs> so when she was dead after five minutes, I, I pretty much couldn't bear that. I was so <laughs> shell-shocked and shaken. It was like the reverse of Doctor Who, where my, my person I knew would survive and I could root for, yeah. actually, was dead within five minutes. So I think that's one reason that I, I loved Doctor Who, because it, it did allow me to sort of get the buzz and and that yeah. thrill of horror. Um, But with a safety blanket to go with it. The the stories that I liked best uh, were probably *Remembrance of the Daleks*, which was set on Earth in 1963, and *The Curse of Fenric*, which was set during the Second World War, again on Earth. So I suppose from that, my answer could be I did like it Earthbound, but I think I quite liked a slight historical Mm -hmm. element, modern history, obviously modern history, because you can associate with that perhaps a bit more. But I liked those elements, because I did like the time travel element, but I still quite liked the, th- the threat to, to my Earth, it felt more home, more, more mm-hmm. you know, real, and then later when I got access to, well, I think originally my first one was on a Betamax, but to <laughs> the VHSs, uh, of which there weren't many at, at first, so it, it was years before I could really see Doctor Who, I mean, God, people don't know how lucky they are now, you just, you know, get BritBox or something, and they are yeah. all there. Mm-hmm. well back then you know there was i think there were about four or five stories on vhs yeah. and i think they were all tom baker and john Pertwee. there was definitely no peter davison i think the five doctors might have been out but that was it there was no Hartnell no troughton there was definitely no colin baker and it took years to release sylvester mccoy's as well so i did see some tom baker ones and, and i did love terror of the zygons which you've mentioned and i still think actually that's a Absolutely terrific story to this day. Most of it stands up visually pretty well as well. Mm-hmm. Ap- apart from one big, big monster, which is never actually not as bad as everyone would have you believe. No. But, but it's, it's still—I um, think there's some elements of that where it looks great. And I, I did watch that one just the uh, a couple of nights ago, and I absolutely loved it. And I had probably hadn't watched that for five or ten years, and yeah, it, it was great. So I do think. Yeah, sorry, long-winded way of probably Earthbound. Because I feel that it's slightly more scary and more exciting when you think, oh, this could be happening where I
0: am. Like I say, it was never a massive doll. I never really found the Daleks to be particularly scary. I found er- the early incarnations of Cybermen to be, uh, again, unsettling, because there's that, particularly in the, the, was it, um, the tomb of the Cybermen, the patch of trauma. Those Cybermen, are. Oh, I don't know if it's because it's in black and white. But even though it's quite clearly, you know, a bloke, in a silver jumpsuit with a lot of plastic because he because you can see those the, the fact that obviously there is human in there and but all expressions all humanity is removed from their face and their voice it's so unsettling as opposed to you know just this this box you know that's moving around on wheels i never found that particularly kind of unsettling
1: well, certainly I think uh, Black and White Doctor Who stands up really, really well. It's, it's mm-hmm. slow. You've got to, you know, go in it's slow because they... they I, I saw it in that uh, docudrama they did, An Adventure in Time and Space, but they were, I forget the exact number, but they were limited to something like four edits per episode, which you just... I couldn't get my head around, you know. I did a, a one-and-a-half-minute news VT looking ahead uh, to the Olympic Games the other day, and I think I had something like 67 edits in one-and-a-half minutes. And they would have to do 25 minutes of science mm. fiction with, you know, uh, special effects and monsters. And they were allowed like four or five edits, there was some union rule. And they, so they were effectively shooting large chunks of it, almost like a play, you know, live, effectively like live television. So the pacing obviously is slower because of that. But the black and white does add an element to it. A, the sets all look good because there isn't enough detail in the image to tell how good or bad they are. Most of the time. There's something eerie about black and white. In fact, my son, who's 14, he's, he, he loves the new the new Who, and he's watched a couple of the classics. But if I'm ever watching a black and white one, he won't stay. He says, why are the black and white ones so much more scary? And he just goes. Mm. So there is uh, something about that. So, yeah, that's good. As for the Daleks, no, I was a Cyberman fan, but mm. the remem- Remembrance of the Daleks, which I did mention, I, I do think was su- is such an extraordinary piece mm-hmm. of television uh, from that era. I do suggest anybody who hasn't watched Classic Who uh, should probably try that one because visually it's really, in large parts, quite impressive. Mm. It's aged a bit, of course, because anything you watch from the 1980s, yeah. no matter what the budget, <coughs> isn't going to look mm. like what they'd make now. But it's still got some really great visual elements, lots happening in the story, and I like the way the Daleks were kind of introduced in it. You know, initially, I won't go to depth of story but there's one Dalek you can't see it they're just attacking this thing that's in a trapped in a kind of shed and it just keeps killing the soldiers so rather than just here's a fleet of Daleks landing in a a square it was this really nice introduction and yeah we get the first time a Dalek ever climbs the stairs and it was a, a lovely nod where their, their escape plan is to use the stairs. So you're thinking, <laughs> oh, well, they get away now. And then the Doctor turns around and finds the Dalek is, is flying up the stairs behind him. So I did think that was great. I, I suppose I probably didn't think they were especially scary, but that's not because I didn't think they were believable or anything. I thought mm. they were yeah. quite well, you know, realised and, and an iconic design, absolutely timeless. Uh, whereas the Cybermen I did think were more scary because I don't know why you, kind of, you could imagine a Cyberman just creeping into your bedroom at night and just, you know killing you or turning you into another Cyberman mm-hmm. I don't imagine a Dalek would come in and
0: you'd hear it coming because it would be <laughs> shouting
1: exterminate me, before we got anywhere near furniture. you <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah my son is absolutely terrified he'd watched a couple of the, the, the modern ones and then obviously having actually you know reason, basically the reason I subscribed to, to Britbox was because of the, the kind of cult TV that's on there and obviously Doctor Who kind of being, being the main one, just because I'd slowly been collecting them on sort of DVD, but obviously there's so many, and plus not all of them were available, I thought, oh, take the And he is terrified of the Cybermen, but cannot stop watching Cybermen episodes, and he will troll through <laughs> each season looking for one. So he, he keeps going back to the tomb of the Cybermen, and I think it's because it is... It's actually a cracking story. It feels like... It just has that sense of adventure, you know, kind of, you know, finding some of the, you know, and discovering... It has a sort of almost like Indiana Jones-type vibe of all these specialists, you know, all these people trying to find this kind of treasure, I suppose. And it, it just moves along really well. And I like you mentioned before about that, I, you know, the fact that it often shot like it was live, I it adds to those, because you often get people talking over each other and sometimes people are missing their marks... Uh, it just feels much more real and therefore the sort of really builds up the tension for me and I think that I find that really appealing as opposed to the kind of you know the the one or two kind of camera setups that you have where it's you know or then having the whole kind of everything shot on video inside and then suddenly they cut to film and it's the exterior but yeah he's absolutely terrified and obsessed with Cybermen Um, but I think it's because of that because of that you feel that actually probably the the most kind of believable monster in the series while the Dalek is like I say the Daleks have had some incredible stories over the years but there's something about them that's not quite as scary I don't know if it's the plunger but I think Simon definitely is a hit in this house (laughs)
1: It's funny, I mentioned the, the one camera thing. I remember reading like in Doctor Who magazine or wherever when I was, when I was a kid and I didn't know how TV was made. And I remember we it, it would sort of say, oh, you know, if only it had more money, they could do single camera instead of multi-camera. And I remember thinking, surely they've got that the wrong way around because if Doctor Who's got multi-cameras... Surely, it's better than Star Trek with its single camera. I never really understood that multi-camera meant they were shooting whole scenes with with a gallery, yeah. a bit like the way we shoot news, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would do whole scenes with three cameras, almost as live. Uh, and uh, same way they do soap operas. Um, whereas obviously with your Star Treks and whatever, they would shoot like a film where you use one camera and light every shot, and it takes a whole lot longer. But you, you just as a terminology, when they were just talking mm-hmm. about single camera against multi, I was like, well, surely multi's way better. You've got three <laughs> more cameras.
0: <laughs> the Hidden Britain Sign Company produces handmade signs and print inspired by British folk horror and unsettling TV, film, and literature. Whether you are a fan of Mr. James, haunted children's television, or public information films of the 1970s, you are sure to find something of interest over at their web store. Go to hiddenbritain.bigcartel.com or follow them on Twitter at BritainCo for more information and haunted content. Use the code HIDDENBRITAN21 at the checkout to receive 10% off your first order. Terms and conditions apply. Hidden Britain cannot be held responsible for any subsequent hauntings, nightmares, or disturbed childhood flashbacks resulting from the purchase of their signs and prints. So, when we decided to have a look at what were the, the sort of standout kind of s- stories uh, that sort of fit this podcast, so this podcast isn't necessarily about kind of horror, it's about the uncanny, it's about what is unsettling. And I thought that Doctor Who is a perfect example of that. It's not horror, but it is horror-influenced. It, it at times can be almost like, for example, the first story that we're going to discuss, The Demons, or The daemons as it's pronounced, <laughs> on, on occasion, with uh, with Pertwee, who's brilliant in this. And this feels like you know, for those people who've never seen Doctor Who and who are fans of horror and or British horror, this is the Wicker Man version of Doctor Who. And you can imagine Edward Woodward, or you can imagine Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee in any of these roles. It is, and watching it again, I I couldn't believe the horror influences. I just couldn't believe how... It really just leaned, leaned into it and just was like this is going to be our, you know, our folk horror story and with some of these, those Doctor Whos that, that have stories were, have a kind of an unsettling supernatural vibe. I always used to find, oh it's always a bit disappointing when you find out it's just an alien but with this it's not <laughs> because it deals with devil worshiping cults, black magic you've got rune stones you've got you know an actual kind of demon devil appear a massive it is there's so much in the story and i couldn't believe how well it, it holds up and the, the, basically the story is about um, them digging, aren't they? In um, what's, it called? Uh, what's it, called? it called? is it called Devil's End?
1: Yes, Devil's yes, End. Devil's yes, Devil's End. Yeah. Yes. I think that the somebody mentioned John. John Pertwee's doctor isn't interested at all in this dig that's going on. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, uh, "Right, well, anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm off to Devil's End." And he does the. Did you just say Devil's End? <laughs> right, I'm coming.
2: <laughs> Realise, of course, that you're a doomed man, Doctor. Well, I'm a dead man. I knew that as soon as I came through that door, so you better watch out. You see, I've nothing to lose, have I? Enough! Hassan, destroy him! Who is this? My enemy and yours, Hassan. Destroy him! This is the one we spoke of. He, too, is not on this planet. He is a meddler and a fool. He is not a fool. Yet he has done a foolish thing coming here. Why did you come? I came to talk to you. Talk to me. man! Sir, but first let her go. No!
0: Stop! Ah. Oh, oh, I am. Not. It starts off with you know the the local kind of village white witch. You've got. Really cozy country pubs, where units set up, and you know, with the with all the brass, you know, on the walls and, and, and tankards and things. And I love that it doesn't shy away from the horror, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that it is Doctor Who. So it's all very much, you know, this is about using your brain. This is about science. And it also has like multiple stories going on. You've got the Master dressed, you know, proposing as a as a rural vicar you've got church crypts, you've got, you know, a, a stone gargoyle who is, who, is, who is terrifying. He looks so real, actually.
1: G. When he first... Because obviously at first he's just a gargoyle, you know, mm-hmm. you don't even know if it's ever going to move, a bit like the, the weeping angels in, in the later hoop. And then when he moves his head the first time, that's what's so creepy. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those things, less is more with that, and it really is effective. And I, I tell you what I think is, is really good and very clever with his story is that you, the master was a big deal in Doctor Who at that time that he was in John Pertwee's stories every other week, you know, and he was the big bad villain. He appeared with the Daleks and everything. He always seemed to be pulling the strings and and they and he was brilliantly played by Roger Delgado. But in this, he doesn't end up being the threat. He ends up being, uh, you know, just kind of another pawn to this demon or, or, or devil, whatever he is. And that makes it, I think, quite scary because the guy you think and and know is really powerful and evil is nothing compared to this great big, you know, evil, almost ultimate evil that's turned up. And I think that's really unsettling. If the person you were already fearing is actually nothing compared to this, then that adds a whole nother layer. And also it's got
0: killer um, Morris dancers. I mean,
1: (laughs) can you think of anything more scary,
0: yeah. It is, yeah, yeah that's what I, I really love that it is. It's so much, it takes all those wonderful folk horror kind of influences and just makes it its own. But also it never, it never forgets what it is, you know, you've got poetry driving around on a motorbike, you've got helicopters, you've got this, this sort of, the the, the town gets covered in this, like a, a heat kind of ring and and and, and unit, the brigadier are trying to get in, and so there's this kind of race against time. It's multiple stories going on, you know, uh, you know, scraps here and there, you know, with uh, Benton getting into a couple of uh, fights here and there and stuff, and it just has so much in it. And if I was if I was going to kind of say right, okay, if you've never seen a Doctor Who and you are into you know, you you do love British horror or folk or you know horror or like us say just just anything that's unsettling. This is a perfect place to, to start because there are there are moments where I think this is when I think, good grief, this was a kids' TV series. You know, this is genuinely unsettling and deals with quite dark, you know, um, storylines. And and you know, there's there's us say that, that that having this the giant kind of um footprints from the from the, the the devil character and the hooves across the the, the uh the c- countryside it's just a just a, I, I i can't praise this one enough i think it really stands up as well it, i i find it moved really really quickly it didn't drag and it was just like i said just an awful lot going on again it's it sort of you know it it, it understood those, those, like I say, those kind of horror tropes, particularly when it comes to kind of satanic kind of horror, where you unleash, the, the, you, know, this, this, you know, this evil, thinking you can control it, but actually that's not going to happen, and, and that's what, what happens, and it's just, it's just fantastic. And, and the cast are, are, are great, the, the, the fact that it's mostly shot from film, the locations are fantastic, it really is a standout kind of story for me.
1: The the only shame is that they lost, uh, the B- well, the, they lost, the BBC wiped the colour copies of it. So they've had to, I think they've only got one original copy in colour of one, one episode of the five. And the other four were recoloured from someone else who had taped it on some early kind of video machine off the TV. And they took the colour signal from that or something and put it back on the black and white. Because if you actually, I first saw it in black and white before they yes, recolourised so, yeah. it. And I think it actually, we talked about black and white earlier, but actually I think being black and white actually helps this story even more. I think it adds to the, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know, the, it certainly adds to the kind of horror element because more mysterious. And I yeah, I I did I watched it in colour and I, I watched it a couple of weeks ago on BritBox and the image is a bit soft where they've recoloured colorized I mean, it's amazing what they've done, but the image is a bit soft. But I'd quite like to watch just the black and white prints they've got of it again because I do remember that looking really striking.
0: Yeah, and there's a whole, you know, you could have a whole podcast on on how the BBC treated Doctor Who and its TV programmes during, you know, during that period, just taping over, you know, classic television because it was just like, well, you know. Who's ever going to watch this? Yeah, exactly. we will be
1: talking about this on a podcast in (laughs)
0: 2021. Doctor,
2: do you mind telling us exactly what you're doing? A little experiment in orthodontology, Mr. Huckle. Orthodontology? Teeth. Teeth. The scientific study of teeth. It's the cast of a tooth, wouldn't you say? Teeth? Doctor, you
0: can't be serious. Teeth are very serious things, Mr. Huckle.
2: Look, let's get this straight. Are you trying to tell me those rigs were chewed up by a set of giant molars?
0: Yes. A set of giant
2: molars that can chew through solid steel as easily as paper. Are you suggesting that we're dealing with some kind of sea monster? Yes. A monster of frightening size and power. This one they call Doctor is a threat to us. Already he has found out too much. He must be
0: destroyed. This is a new Doctor with Tom Baker. So this is the Terror of the Zygons. So this was broadcast in August and September in 1975. And this is starts with the Doctor being called by the, the, the Brigadier and his companions are Sir and Harry. Arriving in Scotland uh, because these mysterious um, force has been destroying these, these kind of oil rigs, there's teeth marks on the. so then you're getting into things around. Again, this, you know, the country, you know, uh, technology, obviously you're in Scotland, so Loch Ness, Kyber, is he's a great character. This massive Scottish bloke. He looks like a stereo. He looks like uh, Ross Abbott's uh, Scottish <laughs> <laughs> character. There's a reference for you. There are um, some, there
1: are some superb Scottish stereotypes in this. Yes. I mean, really, you just wouldn't do it now. Mm-hmm. But if you take it in the in the time, and and obviously the heart was in the right place. It's absolutely fabulous. Uh, mm. it, it, I, I, I'm not Scottish, so maybe if I was Scottish, I'd say something different. But uh, <laughs> I, th- I, I, I just think it's wonderful. Written by Robert Holmes, who was yeah. arguably the greatest classic Who writer overall. Just be, because what he could do is he could do horror and wit. You know, he there were, there are just lines that that, were, you know, are so brilliantly delivered and so well written that are really funny in in amongst all this terrific horror.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that the and I, I say that the 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 sense of again I, uh, that starting off with all these different plot points and then you know the, the revealing different things and how the, the kind of the link up I like that that, that everyone's given just enough time that, that you know Brigadier has enough screen time unit are you know the, 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 there isn't a sort of I think later on that you ended up becoming kind of just unit here just so you can have shoot at things, um, but they actually have things to do in this um, and, and again the that we were saying before when, when it's I suppose it's like invasion of the body snatches, but kind of but, but the zygons are the ones that sort of take on, on your appearance and there's there's, there's, a, there's a particular scene where harry the the, the uh, one of the, the companions is replicated and, and so it's not actually him and he tries to attack or, or certainly, you know, attack, if not kill, Sarah Jane in that barn and it is a fantastic scene because it is he's really he's really going for it and it's really claustrophobic she's trapped and you don't know and she's panicking. She doesn't obviously just doesn't know it's him and that kind of thing. And it it just goes to show that, you know, it's not all about explosions and big sets and things and, and that would just that little scene is just really kind of puts you on edge.
1: I think that's one of the best scenes in the story and it's the direct the directing of it, I think, was really good. Douglas Camfield directed it, and they've gone handheld cameras, so you're seeing it effectively from Sarah's perspective, and that yeah. wasn't done so much then because the cameras were so big and heavy. Uh, they've shot it from her perspective, and he's holding a, a fork, you know, a garden fork, and and trying to stab her with it, and you're seeing it from her perspective, and it's so well done, so creepy in that barn. And that obviously was that part was done on film because um, on location, so just really works and actually you mentioned ian and, and it was such a shame that they wrote him out of the show when they did because i just thought he was an absolutely superb uh, sorry ian sorry harry isn't it? the actor's name was ian ian marta uh, harry he and sarah i think actually are probably the best tardis team uh, they've ever mm-hmm. had yeah and, and, and i understand the reason he was brought in was because they were going to cast an older actor as the Doctor so they needed a kind of younger actiony man who could do that kind of stuff but then when they cast Tom Baker obviously he was younger uh, so they decided that Harry's character was superfluous now and, they, and they, that this is the story they write him out which is such a shame because he was brilliant and, and, and Tom Baker didn't want him to go and Elizabeth Sladen who played Sarah Jane didn't want him to go but the, the writers had their way and, and it was just such a shame because I do think there's such a dynamic between those three absolutely brilliant
0: and again, very capable. And I, I don't know, you know, some companions are more capable than others, and, and some of them are just downright useless. I love that, you know, his background. I love, like, say, the, the interplay between him, the Doctor, and Sarah Jane. It is, a, is, a, is, a real shame. Again, just, just a really capable character who actually adds something to it, as opposed to who's just a character that helps out or gets into trouble to be saved you know and I think that, that that's the, that's the real kind of the balance you have to do is, is actually even though you've, you've got these companions is actually to get them to do something you know that isn't you know just like I say that kind of box ticking oh well you know get them in peril the doctor will save them
1: and I think one thing that's another thing, uh, endless things that's tremendous about this, is the Zygons themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely astonishing that these creatures weren't used again after this story until New Who uh, yeah. eventually reintroduced them. Because, they're a, a, they're a brilliant design and very well carried out. They, mm-hmm. they, and, and I've heard seen a lot of people actually say they think that the Zygons from this story look better than when they did them in new who and they certainly Mm -hmm. they do look really really good really effective i love the design of the interior of their spaceship because you can see how it's all designed to work with them it's so many spaceship designs are based around how a human would have a spaceship no matter what the alien race is but this is designed for me it's all yeah it's, it's it's really good and and the fact of course that they can Turn in. They they can mimic us. They capture you, and then they can turn into a replica of you. Just gives you that brilliant horror, doesn't it? You never Mm -hmm. know who is who and who is not. And in fact, there's a lovely scene where Sarah finds Harry, having obviously dealt with the Harry who tried to kill her. But she's not sure if it's really Harry or is it another Zygon. And uh, he wants her to release him from this room he's locked in. And she's going, "But is it you?" And he's going, "Well, of course it's me. But is it you? (laughs) Well, of course it is." And, then, and and she's still not sure. And he says, "Oh, come on, old girl." And, then, and he says, "Ah, oh, <laughs> it is you." And I opens the door. Um, and it's just all that was just brilliant. So, and you obviously get the, the what, what they call the scarison which is the, the Loch Ness monster, in, in theory. And that's told. You know, people talk about it as though it's absolutely a rubbish effect. Well. It's not very good, but it's it's not it's no worse than the Godzilla's in all those no. Japanese films. I mean that's mm. rubbish, and this is quite rubbish. But hey, they did this on a TV budget, and in there's a couple of shots where it's it's not too bad. But the uh, the spaceship uh, which they have under the Loch Ness, uh, under, under in lo- buried in Loch Ness, the Zygons takes off and flies off, and I think some of the shots of that look absolutely spectacular. Mm. You know, it looks amazing, and there's a shot where it lands. And you actually see the Doctor jump out of it. And I yes. just think it's a real... They've obviously done it with false perspective, but they've done it yeah. so well that you, know, you could have easily see that in a, in, a, in a feature film from that period and be quite impressed with it. So, yeah, people shouldn't get too hung up on the, the Loch Ness Monster not turning out well. I, <laughs> I did hear that they did a lot of stop motion with the Loch Ness Monster, mm. like Harry, Ray Harry Howes and stuff, but they weren't happy with it, so they ended up redoing it with puppets. But you do get one very brief stop-motion shot, and, I mean, it's about two seconds long that they've kept in. And I think it looks really good. And I'm like, why didn't you use more of that? For whatever reason. They spent a lot of money on the stop-motion stuff, apparently, but you don't know the decisions at the time. But, yeah, I just think it's absolutely classic. And I think this is Tom Baker at his absolute best you know, he's, he's not been, I think this is his second season, isn't it? A second series as the Doctor, just starting his second series. So he's got a bit more comfortable. He's obviously, you know, the, the settling in period's done. And he's just, oh, every scene, he can, he, he's absolutely fabulous.
0: I say that the Robert Holmes, Philip Hinchcliffe period, it's, it's so, you know, you could show just a shot of it and you think it's there it's so distinctive the scene where he first arrives and he's like just sits there with Brigadier and he's got like his you know his hat over his head over his face and he just plays it so well he's so relaxed and confident but also it's that smile that as a kid I just didn't trust because I don't know is that a genuine smile (laughs) or is he thinking and again I I think that actually that, that Sylvester McCoy I feel that also had a similar vibe mm. where he was could be at times quite scary, but there was you know just well, he was very to,
1: manipulative, wasn't yes, it yes incredibly,
0: incredibly incredibly,
1: which made him really interesting. He would manipulate his companion ace mm. always you felt he had a good purpose for it, but his way of doing it could be you know quite unsettling, but also he would manipulate events to get the outcome he wanted which was you know a really clever way of doing it as opposed to the others where it'd be just a little bit more obvious to the to the viewer from the very beginning yeah I I just think this is Doctor Who at its very best I think also this kind of era of Doctor Who and I don't I have no idea what era had the most money spent on it but it, it feels to me like this sort of period in Doctor Who's history had a decent-ish budget for, for yes. a children's, what was still at that time regarded as a children's show. I do think the last two seasons, series of Doctor Who with Sylvester McCoy, the production values went up quite a lot mm-hmm. um, but I think they did that more through effort than budget um, you know through sheer determination I just think that I think this is another one you mentioned the demons is a good one to introduce people to, do- mm-hmm. to classic coup. and I think this is another good one because yeah you know for the odd creaky production value there's lots of really good stuff and the characters every single character in this is written with thought and there's no there's no filler in it every line is really well thought out every scene leads to the next thing and there's so many different elements <laughs>
2: Chop Suey, the Galactic Emperor. You will be the first to die. Brain getting a little overheated, is it? Careful, not as strong as it was. My brain functions perfectly. Doubt it, Morbius. All that
0: time in the tank, it's gone soft. Do you dare put it to the test? What test? We have all the apparatus here. I challenge you to a mind-bending contest. I am a Time Lord of the first rank. What are you? Oh, nothing, nothing.
2: A mere nobody, but I don't think you're in the first rank anymore. Very well, Doctor. If that is how you want to die, I accept your challenge. There's a sporting gentleman. What's mind-bending? time, Lord Wrestling. It's usually a game, but it can end in deathlock. It will, Doctor. I, Morbius, do not play games. Neither do I. Are you ready? Mm. On guard, Morbius. Ah!
0: So the brain and Morbius, which was broadcast in nineteen seventy six, which is, I suppose, on first glance is very influenced by Frankenstein, about basically this and and some interesting additions to the Doctor Who, um, I don't know, law that that you mm. find that that he is an actual you know that, that, that this. Surgeon is trying to be seeking body parts essentially to create a a, a new part, a new body for this Time Lord Morbius, who's 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 a war criminal, and is kind of collecting creatures and the incredibly atmospheric, straight off, you know, the use of rain and fog and you know, there's like the you know. Sarah Jane's like climbing up rocks and things, and and just the, the, the reveal of like the monster, and then having a the assistant who was actually quite threatening. You know, uh, it's just again, I think a classic who dealing with you know these influences in its own way. You know, taking that story of, of Frankenstein and completely making it its own, and for it to sit in in a very believable world with again a fairly limited sort of budget i think again this one really stands out for me as a, a, a true highlight particularly for for, for for tom baker's kind of pick. i think
1: it's this stands out for me as this probably the scariest doctor who i think maybe of all because i i only i saw this once uh I think it was, must have been when they re-released it. Cause they released it on, now, there's a funny thing with Brain Amorbius. It was, I think, the first video the BBC released of Doctor Who on, on VHS, and it was cut down to something like 58 minutes, which the whole the whole concept is just really strange because wh- who at the BBC decided, A, we're going to release one Doctor Who video, and it's of someone who isn't the current Doctor or wasn't even the last Doctor or the Doctor before... We're going to have a monster that isn't one of the big sellers. Something not, you know, it's not a Dalek or a Cyberman or whatever. And we're going to cut almost half of it out, and then we're going to charge. I think it was something like fifty quid.
0: Yes. Yeah. It
1: was unbelievable. I remember going into uh, HMV or our price, wherever it was, and like looking at it longingly before they released the other ones, as this new new Doctor Who fan who's only seen Sylvester McCoy and thinking. It would take me like all the years pocket money to save up for that very cut down story. <laughs> do I do it? Do I do it? Do I save and buy it? And uh, it's just so bizarre that they would cut all that out because surely it was just easier just to put the episodes on a video and release it to start. With. <laughs> why Why edit it down? Um, no one was crying out for a heavily edited down story. It, just the whole thing. Very surreal. Um, but then it did later get released as uh, in its original entirety, thank goodness. And that's how I first saw it. But the funny thing was I wasn't especially struck with it at that time. I was still pretty young then. I think it's quite a grown-up one, really. Yes, because when really. I watched it uh, ahead of doing this chat again, I watched it on Britbox, and I genuinely was quite unsettled. It is clearly Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. it's it's almost Frankenstein in space, and it, it doesn't make any apology for it, really. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really scary in places mm. really quite terrifying unnerving and it's horrific and some of the sarah jane finds this what effectively is frankenstein's monster's body the body of what is going to be morbius's body and it's, it's you don't even know what you're looking at it's just disgusting it's just parts yeah. and it's I and mean, the first scene starts with you know a, an, a, a creature being killed doesn't it because this this so it's a mutant or something is come out with a fallen spaceship. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue it's not one of the best ones to introduce someone to new who because it is so dark mm-hmm. and very studio bound. So yeah. the visual limitations hit this one more than some others. Um, I, I did make me laugh. There's a shot where they look at a sort of spaceship graveyard at the beginning where they've somehow been drawing spaceships in to mm-hmm. to take the creatures to yep. chop up for bodies and whatever and it, it is a model a model that i could have made in an hour with <laughs> ob- objects from around the house and a can mm-hmm. of spray paint. Yeah. Um so it is ind- again i went back to what i said earlier how how doctor who is strange like one week you get quite impressive visuals mm-hmm. and then another you you don't and i do i don't know how they structured the budgets from story to story i think the studio bound stories were done in studio to save money but what yeah. But that doesn't justify having less money for the special effects, does it? <laughs> what, you know, save money on not being on location, fine. But that said, it's got great costumes. And and some of the sets are really brilliant. I mean, it's always hard replicating outdoors in mm-hmm. a studio. Those sets aren't too bad, though. But the indoor scenes, I think, are great. The science lab and all the old building. And, yeah, I, 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 th- and I absolutely loved it. It's interesting because, as I say, I wasn't that fussed when I first watched it I think it just I don't know it was a bit too dark for me perhaps when I mm-hmm. was 15 or 16 but watching it again I thought it was um, really good and you do as you mentioned it gives you a bit more uh, it tells you a bit more about the Doctor and certainly implies quite strongly that there are generations of the Doctor regenerations from before William Hartnell which is something that they don't really explore again until the most recent New Who with Chris Chibnall where they suddenly you know, reveal he's been around for since before the Time Lords could regenerate. Um, so, because you actually see images, they're doing this kind of mind battle with Morbius, isn't he? And you see these yeah. images of, and it goes through John Pertwee, Trout, and Hartnell, but then it keeps going with other faces, who, who I believe were members of the production team. So they can all <laughs> oh, claim various that. members <laughs> of the production team can, play, can, can claim they played Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, play, played the Doctor.
0: some random. Thought. Oh, hang on a minute. I don't remember. I don't think I've seen those Doctor Who's. <laughs> yeah. The Morbius itself the body that he has where it's kind of massive, mm. you know huge broad chested, with this like dome, well missing head, and then this like dome with stuff and this weird arm um, it's just a great great piece of design I think that I find that, that this works really well in the being studio bound because you really rack up the kind of trying to sort of create an atmosphere like the use of rain and just how dark it is as well, It's 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 much like what we talk about uh, horror Fang Rock, it's that kind of almost enclosed setting really racks up the tension and and makes it feel claustrophobic and so it kind of benefits from, you know, uh, being studio bound. But like you say, you cut away to a model shot and it, it does sort of take you out of it because the quality isn't quite as good, and it's sort of but then I kind of love that, I do love that, uh, like I said before, that kind of just, that, that some of them aren't great, and I just think, oh, you know, at yeah, least, they were, at least yeah. they, were, they were trying, weren't
1: they? On one or two of them, uh, on the DVD releases and the Blu-ray releases, they have redone special effects, it yeah. seems to be a bit ad hoc as to which ones they decide to redo the effects and I've I've got uh, Earthshock, which which is a Peter Davison Cyberman yeah. story, which was redone one of the early ones, and the newer. Effects in it, are, they sort of had. I don't know if they had something or not. I, I tell you what, they they, they improved the, the laser guns because yeah. the way they do laser effects just looks so much better now. But actually, every other effect they've replaced in it really made no difference to me whatsoever because it wasn't impressed. The new effects weren't impressive enough to no. to really change anything. So, yeah, I, yeah, I've, I I've got. I, I, I quite like that they do those versions because it's fun to watch mm. something different. But it, it, you certainly, I don't think there's any problem with watching the original. You just accept when it was made and they did what they could.
0: I don't. I don't think that it's going to change anyone's mind. It's not. You're going to watch. No. It, oh, I hate that. It's really tacky, or it's it's crap. And then suddenly you watch just one where it's a bit of CGI and go. Oh, actually, I really love I think Is it arc, I think maybe it is the Ark in Space uh, episode. we on DVD. It has like the exteriors of the of the the, mm. the space station is is CGI. And for me, it just that looks that ages it more than the original model because mm. it looks of its time. That kind of Sort of shiny cGI where there 's no kind of detail to it i 'd rather that see you know yogurt <laughs> <laughs> tubs with a bit of wire spinning yes yeah. you know it 's there someone's actually made that. I think with CGI I always find that it he sort of takes me out of it
1: but go, go, just that 's a really good example by the way of when I say to you, I find where Star Trek was always the same, the spaceships always looked sort of quite good, they were never grave they never, they never never looked rubbish. Mm. Whereas with with Doctor Who, so you've got the Ark in Space and then you've got the, the Tom Baker's Cyberman story, The re- Revenge of the Cybermen. They're both set on the same space station. But they've used two totally different ways of doing the effect of the space station. So the Ark in Space, the director for his great wisdom, decided that even though the special effects unit were all set to shoot the station on 35mm film, he didn't want to do that and he was going to shoot it on his studio camera effectively live with a mm. blue screen. And it's very horrible looking and and then you watch the cyberman one where they did it the way they wanted to you shot it on film and it still doesn't look doesn't look like you're watching you know an epic but it just sort of looks so much better
0: yeah
1: and it's just weird that they from one director to another they could literally just do what they wanted there was no continuity mm. in the <laughs> <laughs> but i sort of loved that because you're never quite sure what you're going to get i love you don't get it; doesn't end up too generic, like uh, yes. some some shows do. It's always a surprise. It's always a surprise, guys. Just going back to Brain of uh, of Morbius, I, I do think it's, it's atmospheric. It introduces the Sisterhood of Khan, who are these kind of mm-hmm. witchy type women in a, uh, maybe a cult, and they came back uh, when they they they've shot retrospectively a regeneration story for the for Paul McGann's Eighth Doctor, yeah. uh, and they did it as part of the. 50th anniversary and and it wasn't i don't think it was shown on tv or it might be on the red button on the bbc or something and it was just a five minute thing it was really nice that he came back and did it and they gave him a regeneration but that I, that involves the sisterhood of khan so it was nice to sort of tie them back in and and they're good they're creepy they're creepy mm-hmm. everything about this story is really creepy and there's a a bit where they try it they, they're gonna set the burn the doctor at the, at the stake yeah. for as a sacrifice and well having said how the special effects in this aren't aren't brilliant there was a shot where it looks so realistic that he's almost on fire and i was like wow and i really watched it and this was the other night watching and thinking how did they do that but i have since read that it was a mistake and he nearly you know he nearly perished because that's an actual flame that's like roaring up next to him and apparently they cut at the moment that one of the other actors shouts get him out of there so, uh, and they kept it in, I love that, you know, nearly killed Tom <laughs> Baker, but they kept the shotting, yeah, they looks yeah. so good. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, it adds production value, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actors are expendable. That Robert Holmes kind of period, I think it was Terence Dix, isn't it, who, who was, is involved in that, um, I think he did, did he use a, a pseudonym or something for it anyway? Yeah, but yeah, yeah it just,
1: just, I've got it written here that uh, it says Robert Bland... But it was a Terence Dick's story. Re- Terence Dick's story rewritten by Robert Holmes, right, yeah. who I think had come in as script editor. I think, mm. I think when Terence Dix wrote it, he was the script editor, and then he left. So he kind of left this script, right. and obviously Robert well, Holmes and Philip Pinchcliffe wanted to go their own way a bit. So, you know, I don't know how different the original would be. And uh, I always have a soft spot for Terence Dix because he wrote many, many of the novelizations that yes. were around as a kid. And, and before you could get the stories on VHS, that was my access to older who was i would get the novelizations and, and i i loved them and i sold them i don't know because actually i just want to read them again now i don't know why i did that i sold all my classic doctor who stuff many years
0: ago did you ever read any of the um what the, the, was it the virgin new adventures i, I read I one well, and i don't know I, the quality of the writing there was
1: yeah i must have picked a bad one but there, i think there's been some since that are supposed to be pretty good I've not really got into much spin-off stuff at all. And I know a lot of people talk about Big Finish, which is something I need to explore more. Uh, I think you sent me a link to some Big Finish stuff, but I I hear really good things about what they've done. and uh, I've just always been very much, it's the show. Yes. Uh, You know, it's the show. um, It's the the, the same, I mentioned Bond earlier, because we've both uh, talked about Bond elsewhere. Um, I've read all the Fleming books more than once, but I haven't read any other Mm. On books you know it 's either the film or it 's a Fleming book, but I think I need to change my attitude i think it 's time at forty five that I broaden my horizons to, to both both areas because
0: I think back back then it was very much you know a lot of i suppose you would call now fan fiction, but you know that Mark Gates wrote episode wrote one, one of the stories he had you know various sort of people I think one of them was um, was it written for for Sylvester McCoy, but it was filmed as David Tennant's um, David one. David Tennant, The school. Yeah. 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 I think it was
1: Paul Cornell or somebody wrote it. Yes. That? Yeah. 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 I f- can't think. Family of Blood is what it ended up as on mm-hmm. TV. I can't remember. Mm. Uh, but I, I, haven't, I haven't read the book, but I'd quite like to actually. Um, but yeah, I do know that that came from a book. So again, it does show you that some of them are really good because that actually is a great story. Mm. isn't yes. it? Really, yeah, really Fantastic. Story. I would love to have seen Sylvester McCoy do it actually.
0: Mm. Are you a Bond fan? I mean, Really
2: a Bond fan. If you enjoy dreaming of what 1991 and 1993 Tim Dalton films would have looked like, or if you have a
1: degree in octopusy but still don't know which Fabergé egg is a fake,
0: then the Really 007 podcast is for you. Really 007. We bring an insightful, critical,
1: and silly take on the James Bond films.
2: We are proudly part of the Pod Dojo Network and are available for free on iTunes and Spotify. We have regular, in-depth reviews of every Bond
1: film. As well as special episodes on different aspects of the series.
0: And some of us are a bit down on the Craig era. Robert.
1: While others are happy to pretend
0: to dislike things just to get cheap laughs. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and join in the James Bond Conversation online. Really, 007? Horror at Fang Rock, which was written by Terence Dix, and that was broadcast in September 1977. I suppose, for for, for me, it's everything that I want from that premise, which is it's set in a lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) And then that's it. And there, there are monsters coming from the sea. There's all these weird... You know basically it's it's you know there's things falling out the sky the shipwrecks there's fog there's distrust there's mystery there's tension i think it's just again just hits the mark on everything that it needs to be again this usual kind of cut to here and the production value does let it down but you know leela's the companion in this and she's great you know wanting to stab things and stab people which is always fun well, I have to, a there's lot. a
1: scene I love in this while well, you mentioned Leela and it's it's probably not very politically correct although I don't know because she's a woman but there's a scene where and I've forgotten the character's name but um, a, a woman ends up part of a ship that's shipwrecked there and ends mm-hmm. up in the lighthouse and she's told that uh, someone she's clearly in love with is has been killed and she just starts screaming and it's, not, it's kind of done as a bit of an aside just in the background but as she starts screaming Leela just slaps her around the face just, and really hard mm. <laughs> to sort of get her out of the screaming. But it's, but it's not like, it just just happens in the background. <laughs> I, I was absolutely d- doubled up laughing. <laughs> her, her, uh, her mental health uh, attitude was, uh, <laughs> was well, she is, she's a savage, isn't she? But I just think it was a real funny comedy moment. And uh, yeah, I, d- I don't know if they could do that or not now. I can't, can't work out where that would stand, but it did make me laugh. Yeah, I think she's great. I think it's a, tr- a really good story. As you, as you said about the studio-bound thing with Brain and Morbius, the, the more... I think if you're going to do a studio story, the more you can enclose it and make it confined, the, the better it, it is. And that's even true, I think, of New Who, where they did one called Midnight uh, with, I think it was David Tennant, and it's all filmed, I think apart from one very brief opening scene, it's all filmed in a spaceship no bigger than a, a minibus. And they're just trapped on there for a whole episode... And it's brilliant because it's so confined. And I think it's the same for the horrifying rock. You've got a lighthouse. So it's all really, really confined. And you can feel the friction and the tension building between these characters where they're, as you said, there's mistrust. Who is, because again, this alien creature, which is called a Routon, uh starts taking over people on, on the lighthouse. So you're never quite sure who's who. I do think it. It's, it is let down by the effect of this Ruton creature, which it, I actually think it's one of the worst visuals I've ever seen in, in Doctor Who or anywhere. Because it, it was such a shame, because until that point, you feel like you're almost watching Hammer horror. You know, it's yeah. gritty, it's, it's mm. dark, you don't know what's around the corner, and they're not overstretching themselves, which I think Hammer did really cleverly. It kind of knew where to draw the line because of what it could achieve, and, and that made it really work. And then you you get this thing which is just I don't know it's a kind of glowing beach ball I don't know mm. I don't know how to describe <laughs> it it just looks <laughs> utterly <laughs> ridiculous and it, it
0: is a bit disappointing but
1: and but it, it does take you it does t- d- and that's the I think when it oversteps the mark it takes you out of the scene and and that mm. that did I just couldn't take the green blobby thing seriously which is such a shame because literally until that point I thought it was some of the very very best Doctor Who and and. Again, I think that's my problem with people who aren't for, who aren't Doctor Who fans of the classic era. They would have got to that point and go, "Actually, yeah, this is great," and then that would happen, and it would it would just be, a, I think, a step too far for a lot of people to be able to stick yeah. with it.
0: I think what you mentioned before about that—that the that sort of Hammer horror sense of—I think I think when you are dealing with these kind of budgets, you have to know where your limits are mm. and go, actually this is too much of a stretch. We, we, we clearly don't have the money for this, so you do the kind of, I suppose, you do the Jaws thing, which is don't show too much of the shark, <laughs> you know? Yes. just in, You know, infer it, or we can do something, rather than actually, here you are, here's this, like, like say, glowing beach ball being dragged across the ground. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, well, what a shame, because everything else, like, the, the, the production of the, the, the lighthouse, the costumes, the lighting, and everything is absolutely, Spot on. I think it's really, really, it's a great, great production. And you know, when you watch those kind of classic dramas of, like, you know, whether it's upstairs, downstairs, or you know, when they used to do kind of almost like theatre for TV, were, you know, the, the 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 these kind of like it's basically just filming, you know, a, a play during the seventies. It has that kind of vibe of, of of just people just bouncing off each other with really good dialogue, and you know, it being you know, kind of. Lots of tension. I think that this was one of the the earliest one that because obviously I wasn't I wasn't around when Tom Baker was was the was the doctor. I think it was UK was it UK TV started repeating them from Roba onwards, and I'd never seen any of his because this was before you know. I don't there was videos, but the the DVDs hadn't been released or were just about to be released, so it's like oh great, on TV. And so this was, this was one that I kind of just book went in blind and I just thought, this is fantastic. You know, you don't have to know what's come before or know what's co- going to follow. They're so self-contained that you can just pick them in. And that's what my son's doing at the moment with his He doesn't care. It's just, oh, Simon, he's going to put it on. It's a different Doctor Who. He doesn't care. He knows the concept that he regenerates as a different Doctor. But he's able to just watch it as the self-contained story that has the, the you know, the monster is, that's the familiar thing. And the character of Doctor, but obviously played by someone else. And I think that's what I always love, is just being able to just know nothing of it and go, horror at Fang Rock, that sounds fantastic. (laughs) That's exactly what I want to see. And it lives up to that title. And I think that's when it was really, i say, leaning so much into horror and knowing exactly what it was. And Mm -hmm. this is what we can do. And, you know, and we can do it really well, apart from the... Glowing beach ball, but you know, <laughs> I think they do really well.
1: And I think actually the the, the the frustration when you get the glowing beach ball is because it's done so well until yes. that point. And that's why it's yeah. all all the worst. because really there are yeah. there are Doctor Who stories that we we, we won't cover, which uh, they're a bit flaky from beginning to end. Hmm. They're not all perfect they're, they're for sure. So if you get something rubbish in one that's already not great, it's not going to have to. It's not going to be the most offensive thing in the world. But because this is one of those ones that is done so well it's just so annoying that that suddenly takes you out of this scene and, and this drama i would have done anything not to have it if, if, if i'd seen if i had been directing it or the producer and i'd seen that i would have just said, right the routon is invisible yeah <laughs> we don't A need stopwatch. that <laughs> yeah. Ruton is invisible <laughs>
0: yeah and i think you, know, you say that and that's the one that people pick on isn't it it's, it's those moments so you can show someone all that i say, yeah but what about the scene with the you know with the glowing beach balls, like yeah but what about everything else yeah what about the story the atmosphere the acting you know the dialogue and there's some, one thing oh, that really sharp uh, dialogue in that. T- t- you know sort of shines yeah. across all these is how good the writing is in terms again
1: of, well I mean Terence Dix wrote it and obviously mm-hmm. I, I love him but script editor was Robert Holmes and I'm sure again he would have Put his his stamp in it because again, it's got the humour and the, the the biting comments and and all those little elements that just keep it so sharp.
0: Yeah, yeah I think I, Doctor yeah.
1: Who was becoming more. I don't know when it stopped being. It was a children's show technically, I think, until yeah. probably until maybe Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. Just by going the time it was screened, mm-hmm. but I don't know at what point they started to realise that. Actually, there's a lot of adults watching this show and they're not just watching it because they're sitting with their seven-year-old. So I do get the feeling with Tom Baker's era very much they were starting to write in a way that they thought we need to write this on two levels. One where kids see it as great fun and and, and an action science fiction adventure. But also on a level where it's got to be witty and clever and engaging for, for, for adults too. And I certainly think that was probably happening around... The Tom Baker era maybe I mean but you know you, you talk about the demons and there's other John Purdy ones I suppose the, the fact is I guess and I'm just talking out loud as you can tell by the way I'm rambling that actually children's TV sh- isn't defined by being children's TV if it's really good children's yep. TV adults should be able to watch it too exactly the same as obviously a really good family film should be just as enjoyed by adults as children so I guess that's perhaps all it ever was is just a good family
0: show yeah no, exactly. I think that's what it should be. It should be that it's 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 accessible by all. It's not aiming at or you know, and and it can speak to children, but not in a kind of condescending way. It wants because because you want the children the viewer to grow with it. And I think if you start of aiming too low they'll you know, children can see through it. Mm. You know, when when you see you see some people talking to, to children like the babies you can see that kids going what on earth are you talking about you look like a real idiot <laughs> and i just think that the the with doctor who it, it, it is that balance and at times you know it's not always been successful um and again it's become more horror so therefore you know but i think as a kid you do want horror it's nice to be scared within a safe setting like you know, I always say that that horror for me and i know obviously the, the horror is is very uh subjective uh so people don't find certain things frightening when others think they're sort of terrifying but i think for me horror at its best is the equivalent of uh, you know a fairground ride where it's just enough to unsettle you just to scare you but you know that actually you know you say you're not going to be scarred by this i'm not going to be having you thinking what i want to like I'd never want to look at anything ever again, or I'll never get that image out of my head, or I'll never be able to do that thing or see that thing. I, I don't want that. I want to, to, to be unsettled and then know that, you know, it, it was, it is what it is. And I think as a kid, I always found that, that, that ride of, ooh, you know, and you look at your parents, and oh, they're here, don't worry, you know. But for that moment where it's just you and the TV, you're like, oh no, you know, they're gonna come and get me. And then laying in bed and you think, what was the noise? What was that? <laughs> you know, I think I'd rather have my, you know, your y- children worry about pretend monsters than you know the real ones. So I think that, you know, scaring kids, I think is is um, is always a good thing. I think. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, and then you've always got the threat of if they're naughty, look, you know,
0: Cyberman's gonna come. <laughs> use it against the Scarlet. Yeah. <laughs> get to bed, or Cyberman's gonna come and get you. I have to use that tomorrow night.
2: Doctor, where are you? I want to talk to you. Hey. What's the matter? For basic Matthews in there says this house is Gabriel Chase. So? It's all falling down last time I saw it in 1983. You tricked me! This is Perivale. Ace! It's true, isn't it? This is the house I told you about. When you were 13, you climbed over the wall for a dare. That's your surprise, isn't it? Bringing me back here. Remind me what it was that you sensed when you entered this deserted house. An aura of intense evil. Don't you have things you hate? I can't stand burnt toast. I loathe bus stations, terrible places, full of lost luggage and lost souls. I told you I never wanted to come back here again. And then there's unrequited love, and tyranny, and cruelty. Too right. We all have a universe of our own terrors to face. I face mine on my own terms. But don't you want to know what happened here? No! You've learned something you didn't recognize when you were 13. Like what? The nature of the horror
0: that you sensed here. Ghost light which was broadcast in October 1989. So now with Sylvester McCoy, who's now got Ace. we was set in the past, set in Victorian, can appear, I think it's like, like 1900s. Um, I think what we mentioned before about how Sylvester McCoy is incredibly manipulative, this, for me, really stands out. Um, he brings her to this house that she burned down when she was younger. Uh, as if to sort of... And she told him that this house... She burnt it down because she felt that, the, that she was overcome the sense of evil in this in this house. Again, brilliant setup. And I
1: think Straight she's off. made it blatantly clear to him that she does not want to go to this house. Yes,
0: but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we turned up. <laughs> yes. Stepping out. Here we are. Let's confront your demons for my... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he gets out of that. A good story, a good adventure, or... I don't know, because I, I, of all the companions, their, their relationship is very interesting.
1: I and... think it's brilliant. App- apparently, I mean, Andrew Cartmore was the script editor, and as I say, the first season with Sylvester McCoy, in retrospect, is mm. mostly uh, really poor. But I think it was because a huge amount of change with Colin Baker. The BBC had basically told the producers they had to get rid of Colin Baker. I think... The flaws in the show weren't really Colin Baker's fault, but he carried the can as the leading man. So all of a sudden they had to change everything in a very short space of time and they just didn't really know what they were doing, even though it was the season that I fell in love with the show with. But then by the time you got to the next series of Sylvester McCoy, the 25th season, and then the one that this was in, the 26th, they had come up with a plan or certainly the script editor had Andrew Carmel. And he had this, I believe this grand plan that Ace, the doctor is actually training Ace to be a time lady. Mm -hmm. And these are all little parts of the journey. So he's taken this girl who is, um, you know, a bit of a a ruffian from Perivale. Uh, she's, you know, she likes blowing things up. She gets sacked from a job. She's, you know, she's come from a bit of a bad place. And he's obviously seen something in her and he's trying to get her to confront her fears. Um, because we're going to talk about, an, I think, another story in a bit, Curse of Fenric, where he does exactly the same thing again. And But in this one, it is very blatant. You know, he is full on, this is the place you didn't want to go to because you are so scared of this place. And here I am, I've brought you here. And I've really got no excuse for it. There's a lovely moment. I, I, again, this is a bit like the horror of Fang Rock. I think it's probably a grown-up story because... I wasn't a massive fan of it at the time. I still I still really enjoyed it because I enjoyed any Doctor Who at the time. But it I found it a bit dark, literally a bit dark, as you know, rather than just scary dark, the whole thing was it was lit quite dark. And I found it just not fun. But then when I re-watched this, oh it must be about three months ago, I thought it stood up as one of the greatest. Doctor Who stories, of them all, because it's dark. <laughs> they didn't overlight it like everything. else. All the things yeah. I didn't like before. Yeah. The story, if you really pay attention and listen, is so interesting and so many quirky layers and weird things going on. And and the main the main kind of baddie is effectively light, literally light, yes. it has is a, is, has become a creature, and it it's just sort of mad. And what I would like to do, actually, I mean, I watched it on BritBox, but I think this is one I might buy the the DVD of because Mm -hmm. they have an extended edit. And I actually think that might fill in a couple of gaps for me because I seem to remember when I read the novelization of this way back when that actually filled in a couple of gaps for me. But I've kind of forgotten what they were now. So I think actually because I know they overshot this. They did have a habit, I think, in this era of of shooting too much and then trying to cut it all down. So I'd be interested to see the extended edit. But it, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It's it's kind of mad, it's bizarre. And this whole thing with the Doctor and Ace, oh, it's it's just delicious. And I think they both act it really well. And there's a scene where she's having flashbacks and you kind of see the sirens flashing on her face and it's it's just so so grown up. Do you know what I mean? It, it's just, oh, it's brilliant. And you see it in her eyes and I love that. I absolutely love it.
0: It's an incredibly grown up. Story in terms of there's a lot of a lot of plot. that's not always easy to follow. Like I say, it's it revolving around you're basically cataloguing life forms. Someone trying to assassinate Queen Victoria and take over the British Empire. Theories of evolution. You're touching on colonialism with explorer who's mad. Oh, I love him uh, because of he's- madness.
1: Usually you get people who want to rule the world are mad in mm-hmm. sci-fi. That's, that's their job. But he's actually just really mad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I just think... It, because it, it's, it, I find that quite unnerving. Mm-hmm. Because you're expecting him to turn out to be something else I mean, other than... Yeah. yeah. But then you suddenly realise he is just mad. And I, I don't know, that really threw me off. I thought that was... Again, there are no stereotypes in this. Everything is... Every character is... Either mad or or interesting or bizarre or original, but there's there's just no everything is so well written in it, and it re- and the whole thing really well acted, studio based, and it's a you know an old mansion. Well, we all know the the BBC has, is great at sets like that because yeah. they do it for period drama all the time, so it looks fabulous.
0: The conceit see of the, the haunted house and the Victorian mansion, and then you know, like I say they're almost like that upstairs, downstairs, you know, with the maids, and then. Finding these kind of creatures in the in the cellar that are kind of husks of the previous kind of, that have been discarded that have come to life. And you've got the the butler, called Nimrod.
1: Oh, the butler's who's fabulous! Who's like this
0: Neanderthal? Like he hasn't evolved, and it just it just makes you think. Like, so what is going on? Why is he like that? And then there's the story of like the the, the police inspector who's sent by the Scotland Yard to, to investigate missing father who's just been kept in this drawer for like (laughs) two years and then comes around and then he starts his investigation again it's like right okay and I have to admit when I first watched it I didn't didn't see this originally so I watched this on, on DVD probably well like maybe like four years ago or something like that and I was I was I, I watched it and I uh, remember turning to my wife I was like, Did you understand this? She's like, No, I don't understand what what? I thought maybe I am so glad. I thought it was me. I thought I'd I really struggled to, to to follow this plot of all sorts all sorts going on. And what I I think watching it again is what I appreciate is it is a very adult in, in that in the, in the proper sense that it's not adult meaning that it just means it's gratuitous it means it's it's written for adults and it expects your attention um and it deals with you know quite serious kind of themes you know but but you say that hadn't realized just how deep and how complex you know ace as a companion was you think of ace you think of her in that bomber jacket throwing bombs around with a baseball bat and that's it you know that's all, she, that's all she's really good for but in this and the Curse of, of Fenris, she just becomes like for me top tier companion and she's she's so well acted the relationship between you know her and the doctor is complex and feels very real that she she's the, almost like she's learning and she, she you know that she's being kind of stretched. At the same time, is she's surprised by him. She learns more about him, and she's like, actually, he's not who I thought he was. Sylvester so McCoy, you think of the Bertie Bassy, you know, the, you know, kind of costume, and you think of oh well that was the, that was where the you know the BBC were desperate to, to cancel it, weren't they? And and you know, they were just basically draining it of a budget so it would just like die out. But like you mentioned, those those stories, that those last two series, you've got battlefield, you know, you got it. It's just it's some fantastic episodes, fantastic writing, and a real highlight, a really highlight of the, of the series. It, it going back, it really does hold up because of it is complex. It is wanted to do interesting things, um, but yeah, I was I was genuinely surprised. I thought this was going to be oh, you know, the ghost is just an alien that's trying to communicate or take over something, but there's much more to it, and I'm still kind of, you know, <laughs> watch it again and be like, I completely missed that. Now it makes more sense. So there's, there's one worth watching a few times, I think. With, so.
1: I mean, it's certainly I think one of the reasons I didn't enjoy it massively, I th- although, I, well, I'm not going to say I'm intelligent now, but I think people think I'm intelligent now because of the job I do, but I was a late developer, and I, I in that sense, I, you know, I didn't do particularly well at school, mm. uh, and I—I li- I think the ghostlight. I just did not understand what a lot of things were in mm-hmm. it. I just didn't know what, what the li- almost literally what the words meant. I, so I was so lost by it that it, you'd I'd kind of just was watching it very much on the surface because a lot of it was just being dismissed by my my brain, you know. Uh, but now, when you watch it, that's why it's so interesting, and and you, yeah, you can't take it all in in one, and you certainly. If you watch it, this is if there's one Doctor Who where you can't turn to a friend and, and say something during it or pick up your phone, it's this one. You have to watch, otherwise, you will have missed something because every everything leads to something else, and it is mega complex. And I do think you need to to really fully understand it. I don't think I'm same as you. I still don't think I fully understand it. But the more I watch it, the more brilliant it seems to Mm -hmm. become. I think it's so clever. And and yeah, for anyone that says, you know, has this perception of Sylvester McCoy's Doctor, which I think actually largely came from his first season when he was doing the clown Mm falls and stuff, actually more than anything else. I think it came from that where they didn't know what they were doing. He didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do with him. It was the whole series was shot in a rush and it looks rubbish. This just, this is, couldn't be further removed. You know, you could take us from his first season, take any one of those stories pretty much and put it next to this. And it's like you're on a different planet to two completely different TV shows. And it's just a shame that, you know, that not so many people were watching it by then because it was terrific. I suppose one of the downsides with it may be because I didn't understand it as a kid and I was 12 then, I think, 12 or 13. Admittedly, yeah, I wasn't the brightest kid, but... If you think it's a show that originally had a lot of seven, eight, nine-year-olds watching it, yeah. I don't think they would have got ghost-like. So on the on the flip side, you've got something that stands up brilliantly and is very adult and very clever, and, and we, sh- we can be rightly proud of it. You can also see that well, if you still want the kids to watch, they've got to understand what they're watching. So I, I guess if, if I'm trying to be balanced, maybe it was almost too clever.
0: Yeah, I think it just it didn't allow – I don't know if it's to do with sort of Exp- it didn't allow those moments where the plot was explained. It was very kind of just moving on to the next thing, and 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 people talking about talking. About not ex- it wasn't as explicit in its. Ex- this is what it's about, and I think because of that, you do struggle, and you kind of you feel like you're trying to play catch up. Every scene It's like, Oh, the doctor's talking now. He's going to explain it, and he doesn't. He's just talking about, and then goes oh, no, no, and then and I found that. Kind of at times could be kind of frustrating. Like I said, I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I suppose like a preteen watching it and and getting much out of it is very much for, for, for adults or, you know, teenagers who are concentrating. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I suppose one thing you've lost from the very early days of Doctor Who was that the companion really or at least they'd have a, sometimes more than one, but one of the companions was really there for the Doctor to explain things to because the companion was us. Yeah. So the companion would ask a question, so he would explain it, so we knew what was going mm-hmm. on. But by the time you get to Ghostlight, that ain't going to happen because their relationship itself is so complicated yeah. now that there isn't time for her to be asking him to explain things. And if she does, he isn't going to anyway. Yeah. But uh, fascinating and great television. And I do think... It's another fairly decent one to say to people, you know, if you've never watched Classic Who, you've got to have your mind open to classic television to watch any of this, obviously. Um, but a lot of people have and a lot of people you know would, so if they haven't, that's a good one to come into.
2: I've had more trouble getting into Green for Disco without a ticket. You can always go back. I'd rather go rock climbing. Not in those
0: clothes. <laughs> final one we're going to sort of discuss is another Sylvester McCoy, and that's The the Curse of Fenric, which was written by Ian Briggs, and that was broadcast in October 1989. And this one is another standout story, set at a naval base up in Northumberland during the Second World War. You've got a sort of Alan Turing type character who's creating this kind of early you know, code breaker you've got the Russians are coming You've it's set at the seaside and it has that well it has, it, I suppose its biggest influence is Dracula uh, it has vampires but they're not explicitly called vampires or look like vampires but it has those kind of vibes it's got a more even more complex uh storyline for Ace one that when i watched i thought are they going to do that i thought no they're not going to do that and i was like they did do that and I, <laughs> and i think i thought it was like wow i was really surprised there's some really bold choices and again to be to to for, for these stories to be you know uh very much grown up but entertaining this one is much more kind of uh, there's much more uh action in this with the, obviously we've been set in a military base with the russians there's more you know more explicit kind of horror um and yeah just just a fascinating reveal and i just didn't realize i hadn't realized that how complex some of the writing could be or how complex characters could be in 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 doctor who Like i say ace is, is just really stands out as 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 a real firm favorite because she is so complex and i feel like every time i watch it i'm learning more about her as opposed to she's just the they like say just to, for, for the doctor to explain things to but actually explain it to us yeah this is real stand out and i think that you know the stuff about uh, her relationship with her mother you know, the Doctor is being deceitful again and manipulative and great location shoot, but really atmospheric. and
1: Yeah, it's uh, brilliant. They shot the whole thing on location, which was very rare for Doctor Who. And, and I think that really adds to it. And there's the, some underwater filming at the beginning, really eerie where you see dead bodies Sort of just come to life. It's that thing where you've, mm-hmm. the camera's underwater swimming around. There's, yeah. a, there's a dead face. I mean, how horrific would that be for a seven or eight year old watching? Let alone, you know, someone older. <laughs> and then the the kind of eyes open, the the classic horror shot. You get that in it. The cast is absolutely superb. And and the funny thing, I um I can remember the trailer for this season. And and by then the BBC were almost trying to pretend Doctor Who didn't exist. So its trailer consisted of one shot they didn't edit anything there was no kind of nicely cut together sequence of you know bangs flashes and and sound bites it was one shot and it was uh Sylvester McCoy's doctor talking to uh Reverend Wainwright who was played by Nicholas Parsons yeah and uh I can remember this trailer being on and having said you know I said I'm not someone who particularly gets excited about much but I can remember for those 10 seconds or whatever it was my heart was thumping so hard in my chest when I caught that trailer on TV. And I was watching it, and I can't remember if it was my nan or my mum was there, and they said, oh, it's Nicholas Parsons. But that was all that was said. I had no idea who Nicholas Parsons was. So from that, I just deduced he was a famous actor. I had no idea he was a quiz show host and all this. And when I watched it, I thought he was absolutely brilliant in it. Uh, As I say, I had no idea that he was a quiz show host. So I think if you knew him as the famous quiz show host that I latterly realised he was it might be a little bit harder to see how good he is in this. You know what I mean? Just because you, you've got a preconception. But I think he's fabulous. Alfred Lynch, who plays Commander Millington, uh, is absolutely superb. And Dinsdale Landon, who's Dr Judson in, in the wheelchair. I mentioned that he's in the wheelchair because that is really key because it, it leads to one of the greatest Doctor Who cliffhangers. And I, it's one of those things, isn't it? Where, But the, basically the cliffhanger is he stands up. Now, when you say that, it sounds rubbish, doesn't it? But when you see it in the context of the story, the mm-hmm. power of that happening
0: yeah.
1: is so frightening. It's almost like magic has just happened before your eyes. When, of course, actually, it's just an actor who can stand up. But it's so well done. For it's, I, I do some. It's it's possibly my favourite classic Doctor Who of them all. Mm. I do I do have a very soft spot for it. Remembrance of the Daleks as well. But it's just so well filmed and it is so clever and this whole business with again ace uh, and the the doctor manipulating events in in, i don't want to give too much away because i want people to watch this who've Mm. not seen it all i'm going to say to you is that ace absolutely and it's been made clear in previous episodes really hates her mother like hate with a capital h so i'm not going to say too much but that leads to some brilliant drama yeah and absolutely
0: superb drama
1: yeah absolutely superb and the horror elements the, the vampire elements are great I love the shooting when the ace is being chased by they call them hemovores, you're kind of vampire creatures and they shot it handheld going up this kind of side of this castle it, really creatively done uh, and there's some big bangs in it you know there's a there's a shot where they find a a bomb in an office that's been left for them and they run out and they blow this whole <laughs> building up. You know, you just think, how are they doing this on this yeah. tiny budget?
0: You it's know? them running to camera, isn't it? It's and like, yeah, it's not stump- people
1: standing in, <laughs> it is them. Actually, poor Sylvester McCoy gets blown up quite a lot in his stories. They, they must have somewhere they found a stash of pyrotechnics and they're just like, Yeah, just take this lot and we'll use them during his, his run. But visually it's really good. And one or two of the one or two of the masks on the, the creatures, you know, yeah. wobble a bit here and there. But uh, you're kind of picking at hairs because most of the visuals in it are really, really top draw. And the cast, it's got to be the best cast of any complete cast of any Doctor Who story. Just so many standout performances because Dr Judson and Commander Millington were at school together and Judson, who is, is the wheelchair-bound genius, somehow blames Millington for him ending in a wheelchair. I think it was a rugby in accident or something, but he blames him. So there's this kind of underlying thing between them also you're never quite sure if maybe they actually were in a relationship at some point there's all mm. sorts of underlying little subtext going on and yeah I just think it's brilliant there's there's, a, there's two girls in it who are a little bit annoying at times play these kind of teenage mm. Londoners who've been sent out um, as, as evacuees and maybe at times they're just a, a little bit annoying but but you know it's it's terrific terrific television and I love this the second world war so the obvious thing is the Germans are coming yeah but no it's the Russians that are Mm. coming who are on our side and it's just this twist right at the start all that is really beautifully done I love it I think it's again it's just such a shame that this came at a time where I think a lot of people had stopped watching Doctor Who because of what had happened uh, three or four years before rather than actually what was happening now which was Doctor Who back to its real best and it's a great entry point is say if, you, if you're going to go back and watch a classic Who and if you've got a, it'd be even better if you've got a, an opinion that Service McCoy was rubbish just because of vague memories of mm-hmm. what happened at the time you know watch this or watch Ghostlight, and I think you'll have a very different opinion by the end of it I love it yeah. I get so excited talking about it because it's so impressive
0: yeah, there's some great set pieces, like the bit in the church. They say that the, 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 the Aces climbing up to you know the, the, to the towers and they're trying to stop them coming in, and, and there's like the doctor talking about faith, and and you know, and it's just there's just so much going on, and it, ne- it never feels like uh, overwhelming, like they've lost in you know, control of the plot. Mm. Everything ties in really well, and again, that kind of cross cutting to the to the Russians, it, like. You mentioned the the, the girls are um, a little bit annoying, <laughs> and then back and say that back and forth of subplots and and subtext and you know and and really indeed de- again dealing with kind of really big kind of heavy issues. I was I am ge- always genuinely surprised just how great the writing is and the production itself. I think is. Almost perfect because it's all on location. It is a real sense of time and place, and and you know the the, the use of, of beaches and like I say that walking underneath you know these sort of figures underneath the water. You know, there's something quite you know those desolate beaches. You know, almost like in winter are always a little bit kind of creepy and a little bit kind of unsettling. You know, it seems so sort of lifeless, uh, and it uses those really well. And um, to th- to think this was. Was it, was, it, was it the last one that they shot or it was certainly one, you know, was it second to last kind of mm. broadcast? What a, what a way to go out. And, uh, you know, and, and to mention things like, like that, which was the last one, you know, survival. Again, an honourable mention, which is one that I, I had seen photos of it and thought, oh, gosh, that looks a bit ridiculous. And then having watched it, I think he's he holds up really well and, again, has some really interesting things to say Leans more into the sort of you know more into the sci-fi, but what a what a great you mentioned those two series of top quality writing and, and and acting and production and stories really strong stories. There's no no sense of oh they've run out of ideas, you know. I feel that they could quite easily have carried on, you know, given it's, the the correct support, could have carried on. Yeah, you know, for yeah. a few more series at least before he got anywhere tired. I think with such great characters.
1: There's um, a nice element in the Curse of Fenric uh, with um, with the chess. Chess plays a part in it, uh, and w- and that's interesting because again, even though I had watched religiously, I hadn't made the connection that there's a chess theme running through Sylvester McCoy's. Well, certainly once they got their act together. Now you go back, and I've I've read that there is, and you go back and you see he picks up chess pieces in different stories, and he's been playing this game throughout some of his other stories. So in the previous season, in Silver Nemesis. They, he and Ace turn up in uh, in a location set in I think it's like sixteen thirty eight, and he sees the chessboard and he says, "Oh, this game's not going well." And he moves a piece, and it was all building up, you know, just so subtly. It would be if it was done now, rightly or wrongly, it would be made much more obvious. But then it was just. Obviously, Andrew Cartmell, the script editor, had up this plan all along about this this ultimate game of chess. So he's getting the Doctor to just play it bit by bit. And it's only when you get to this story where the, the final game of chess is played. And, oh, yeah, it's just so, so good.
0: Well, honestly, if that doesn't convince you to dip your toe into... Classic Who, but I don't know what. Well, and we have it, it, this is this is like you know this is tip of the iceberg. i say talking about honourable mentions, possibly again, the 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 Doctor Who that that really sort of uh, sort of took my head off. I just I just didn't know that, that Doctor Who could could do this. Was that the Towns of Wen Chiang it was a story that was I just Tom Baker Victorian London. You've got Fu Manchu sherlock holmes jack the ripper vibes in this story you know to do with you know theater and the slums of of london That, that was fantastic and again it's not overtly you know horror and unfortunately people do remember mostly remember the rat you know which is a shame but the acting in it you know the costumes the production this is this is this is high quality, you know, television. You know, production values just for the BBC, and never mind for, for for Doctor Who. So for me, that was, you know, I could have easily added that to, to, to this list.
1: As yeah, it is a superb one, and again, I think it's a slightly more grown up one mm. uh, to watch. Because when I first saw that on video, it wasn't one of my favourites, and then when I watch it and I'm older, I absolutely love it. Very dark, very atmospheric. They they actually did get the budget to shoot some of that at night, which was quite often it was just done with a filter, which never looks mm. the same on the, on the lens. So this was actually shot a lot of this at night and it really adds to it. And it, I mentioned earlier about how they'd redo the special effects for the, the DVDs on some of the DVDs. And actually that is one where I think they could redo the rat because it's yeah. it's quite cuttable into it. Mm. You could recut those <clears> shots into it. And I don't think they did redo it. And that it seems such an obvious one and it wouldn't probably be that hard in this day and age to make a significantly more realistic mm. giant rat but yeah, if you can ignore the rat, it's terrific, and also, and it gets a lot of complaints for because of yes uh, uh, potential racism. Mm-hmm. We we won't go down that route now, but uh, of its time, but it's um yeah, it's absolutely superb, uh, really atmospheric. One I, I, I'd like to throw out there, which I you mentioned Bertie Bassett earlier, <laughs> is the Happiness Patrol because when that was broadcast, uh, I was as I said to you, I was already very conscious that. This show that I'd fallen in love with was under threat and I say I don't really know how I knew that. I don't I don't know if it came across in Doctor Who magazine or if that you know that was a a BBC publication, so I don't know if they'd have wanted that so clearly put across, but I did get this feeling that this show I'd only just discovered and I loved so much, had to had to sort of be good to survive, even though it was now twenty-five years old. And I remember this going out and the the henchman in it, he's not actually the main villain, the main villain is is, is a woman. But the henchman is does look a lot like Bertie Bassett. And, and there was a whole... They were taken to court by Bassetts and everything. So I'm watching and thinking, I can see this is brilliant. Because if you actually mm-hmm. explore the story, there's a reason he looks like this. It's, it's been done as an obscure, quirky thing, and he is partly made of candy. He's just a robot. Why can't a robot? A robot can look like anything, can't it? Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he kills people with experiments with, with various types of, of candy and stuff and it's just the whole the whole story is utterly bizarre but i loved it but i did see the Candyman and think well this will be used as fodder now against the show you know because you can easily take a clip out of it and it just looks ridiculous if you haven't got the context if you watch that story properly it is fantastic and it's interesting because it it is trying to create a whole planet in a studio now even on a normal doctor who budget they would struggle but uh the budget for that one was cut, and I know that because the pre-story before it, which I love, *Remembrance of the Daleks*, which is probably the most visually spectacular classic Who story, went over budget. And instead of instead of the sensible thing it would have been to say to the BBC top brass, "Look, sorry, we've gone over budget, but have a look what we've made." And they'd go, "Wow, actually, do you know what? You've only gone fourteen thousand pounds over budget in a world where films cost fifty million pounds." And you've made that. That's amazing. We'll spend that on all the other shows. Instead, they just took it off them. So the next story had an even bigger cut. So what they kind of did with this world they tried to create in a studio with even less money than normal was I don't think they've really tried to make it look real. The whole thing is just surreal. Set on a planet where the law is you have to be happy. um, Because you can almost imagine a government... Doing that in a sense because it's their way of the, the obviously the whole society is not happy. So, how do you fix that? When well, instead of fixing the problems, you just make people happy. You've got to be happy, and everything's jolly all the time. There's jolly music everywhere, and there's jolly colours, everything's pink. People wear pink clothes, buildings are painted pink. You have to be happy. And and you realize there's all these underlying problems, and it's really interesting, explores so many things, and there's so many bizarre scenes, and the candyman is brilliantly surreal. And I absolutely love it. But unfortunately, had that come at the peak of the show in Tom Baker's time, I think it would have been regarded as an absolute classic. But because it came at a time where people wanted to hate the show, it became that fodder. And, and I would suggest to people to go back and watch it. And it's, you know, the Candyman, I think is quite scary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'll just, I'm going to really quickly rattle through my favourites from the other Doctors because we've not mentioned them. Uh, first Doctor, I love the very first ever episode. I think it, it is everything the show should be, and, and to, to do so much in twenty-five minutes, the unearthly child. You don't have to watch the other three parts; they get a bit boring. But the first part is just blinding television and fast and fantastic. And I also do really like the Dalek invasion of Earth, which I rewatched recently. and I uh, probably Tomb of the Cybermen, which you mentioned. I just think that is—I can see why your lad loves it because I think it's uh, it's absolutely brilliant. And sadly, a lot of the trout stories aren't around because of uh, the BBC's uh, sensible ways yeah probably probably the demons i also really like the green death uh which is another earthbound story um kind of a and that was interesting doctor who at that time was very much tackling climate issues and mm-hmm. things and you think how far ahead of its time yeah. that was well that's now such a huge issue for us now but they were looking at that 50 years ago and the damage we were doing to the planet and that that's one of several poetry stories that covers that i thought that was great we've talked enough about tom baker with Pyramids of mars is another terrific story yeah. again a gothic kind of horror with the mummies uh, that's really worth checking out and that's aged very well Actually, the last few bits on Mars are a bit silly because there's this whole sequence where they have to crack these amazingly complex codes and stuff to get through doors but the, they're so not complex <laughs> it's not the greatest prison is it? Like I can solve that in like 20 seconds um, but apart from that it's, and it's, it's, it's a lovely story to watch um, Peter Davison Earthshock is a great one Uh, It's got Cybermen in it, but they kept that as a surprise, which I really like in this day and age where everything's revealed. You didn't know it was the Cybermen until the end of the first episode because they hadn't been in the show for donkey's years. Plus Caves of Androzani, another really good Davidson one. Very dark. He regenerates at the end of it. Yeah, I really like that. Colin Baker is tricky. I don't actually hate his era, but I don't think they ever got his relationship right with his companions. There's a lot of... They're either bickering or sniping. um, But I actually do quite like Terror of the Vervoids, which is a part of his final season. The um, the Trial of a Time Lord is a big over-arc thing and obviously a bit of an in-joke because they, they felt the show was on trial. And I, I, did, I do quite enjoy that. And, and um, yeah, yes, it's difficult. I quite liked his, his Cyberman 1 as well, although it's quite violent. And Sylvester McCoy, well, you can probably take all eight of his final stories and I'd be very happy, uh, adore them. There so you go. I've, any, any others you'd, you you feel like I've, we've not mentioned?
0: Um, yeah, I agree with I agree with you. That of Mars, um, Two Cybermen, uh, maybe Spearhead from Space. Mm. It's, it's um, Perseus' first one, and the autons are pretty terrifying when the <laughs> particularly the, uh, the the shot window dummies is coming to life. Um, and that, that was, was
1: the one, I think that was the only who ever include, including including modern well apart from the Paul McGann movie only whoever to be shot entirely on film mm. and, it, yeah. and it looks so good and what I think is really interesting is that the, the sets, because they obviously had to shoot the studio bits on film too, was because of a strike uh, or something, but the sets don't look like sets mm. because you just show, film makes things look <laughs> different you know. <laughs> and it's interesting that we always talk about bad sets but actually I think a lot of the time it was just the way those old video cameras in the studios picked stuff up, they, they couldn't handle contrast at all so stuff never looked quite natural to the human eye, whereas film could handle the contrast. So I think if they would actually... The sets didn't need to be better. It was what they were filming on on it needed, it needed to be better, really. But, yeah, that, I think that's a really good example to be mm. from space, yeah.
0: Maybe the robots of death. Mm. I really like that one, because it has a sort of Agatha Christie, almost murder mystery kind of vibe. It has an art deco design of the robots. There. It's really quite striking, that one. Um, and
1: that's aged very, very well. There's nothing about that, I don't think, that's, that looks ropey. That is a really good example.
0: But it's just, there's so much to, to, to choose from. And like I mentioned about other great kind of series, whether it's, you know, to have access to that huge back catalogue, it's like, what are you in the mood for? And I think it's great that, that you know, that the BBC have been doing those, the animated versions of the Trouton ones. And then also that on BritBox and them having the first... You know, unearthly child having the sort of the first pass at that, that they, they, they sort of ditched and then did it again. And to see it's such a, a fantastic kind of archive of television to see it, like you mentioned, that the first one is, 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 is pretty much perfect and sets up everything. The, like you mentioned, in the later story, you just get a bit, um, yeah, you just get a bit tired. But to see this, the genesis of this TV series and the two kind of versions. Oh, it's it, extraordinary. It's can you
1: imagine that, now that they they did a, They they shot an episode of Doctor Who now, and then they, and then they said, "Actually, can you just go and do it again, <laughs> exactly the same? <laughs> do it again." Yeah. And that just shows you how TV was done then—that you could just go and make that episode again. I think that is extraordinary.
0: Colin Baker ones—I—I I, I really haven't given them the time of day. I don't know, it's just because they're, they're, I, I would always sort of choose something else from that period. You know, there's so many great stories. from Peter Davison's. During his sort of period, that I tend to sort of just sort of gloss over that kind of period and i think yeah i need need to go back and 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 have another look at them and there's loads of patrick trout ones that that uh, the ones that i have seen i've really enjoyed and i thought I, I i do really like his you know his version of the doctor and some of the stories are great really really strong and and I just need to sort of go back and and, and revisit those and it's just great to have you know where do you start? By the time you get to the end, you just start again. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean it. It, it is a, 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 you know I've been a, a say a huge Doctor Who fan since I was eleven, and I've still not seen them all. I've still mm. not seen all of classic Who, which which just shows you how much there is. Now, part of it was because of access and and mm-hmm. cost. You know, how many DVDs do you buy? I did I did at one stage I had loads of VHSs. Like I mean, loads and loads. But they they all cost money, and then the DVDs cost money. And now, obviously, BritBox is here, and you've got the monthly fee, but it's not a huge amount to give you that access to everything. And then, so that's my window. And I'm, but I have found that to an extent, I'm going back watching the ones I love. I have, I've watched a couple I haven't seen before, but a lot of the time, I'm going back and watching the ones I, I love already. So I, I, I need to, I do need to get through some some more. I've I have thought about actually just starting at the beginning.
0: I did try. I did try that. I I, I started with from from the beginning. Watched the, the the first kind of pass on that episode, then watched it the the, the broadcast version, then started making up. But then I just like I got got too excited and thought, <laughs> I want to watch. Look, like, give me a Tom Baker one now. You know, I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to. I haven't seen Sylvester McCoy's that story for years. <laughs> like, so to have, I'd be, I've been slowly buying the DVDs and. I was getting nowhere, really. I was never going to have a complete kind of, because they were slowly releasing them. I don't think everything had even been made available. So to, to, to now have access to all of them, well, whatever's you know, what are kind of available, um, is, is fantastic. And it is time to start from the very beginning and move, move the way through. But like James Bond films, you're just like, what am I in the mood for? I'm in the mood for, you know, something that's more horror or something that's more sci-fi or something that's you know from that period as well I often go through like, I like uh, watching stuff that's from a particular time because it's, it's nice to kind of lose yourself in a time and a place so it's like actually I really want to revisit the stuff in the 80s and you know watching Oh, they're on location. I think, gosh, that looks like that youth club that I used to go to, you know, <laughs> you know and it's just such a such, such nice place to kind of, like I say, just get lost in. Um, but no, I I, I really should uh, go back and, and, and watch the ones that, that I'd kind of either dismissed or just thought I'd heard, oh, well, apparently that's not a good one, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, really, I think they're all worth, you know, the time. I think the you know, having... having you know, kind of sort of bought the story bought the the, the, the idea that Sylvester, Sylvester McCoy's you know, stories were a bit naff or you know, it wasn't really Doctor Who it was really, you know, it was dying actually, they're some of the best so maybe there's some real, real gems you know, within Colin Baker's, who knows? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's such a shame about Colin Baker. They, uh, I I just think that I do generally think the show lost its way, because I think and it's a retrospect's an easy thing. And when you're when you're there at the time and you're trying to keep it fresh and trying to be different, I totally get that it's much easier for me now to look back and go, well, I wouldn't have done that. But for me, the big biggest problem of all in that era was actually the relationship between Colin Baker and his companions, and they never got that. Right for me, he was either bickering. He was quite horrible, really, to Perry to start with, and I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. I mean that that isn't what the successful TARDIS companion teams have been built on. So there was this horrible bickering thing. Then in his second season, they obviously thought, oh, that didn't go too well, so they have softened him. But then Perry leaves, and they bring in Bonnie Langford, who lovely woman, great dancer, I can't bear her <laughs> as in doctor who at all and I, i'm sorry uh, to to bonnie because i think she is uh, probably a lovely person but uh, I, yeah i just hated it and i hated it was not at the time because at the time i loved uh soesta mccoy's first season but in retrospect i can't bear it when she's in uh, with soesta mccoy either and it was such a relief when sophie Aldred became ace uh, Sophie Aldred, who I went on to work with, which was very exciting. And I had to play it dead cool that I wasn't a complete, obs- you know, obsessive yeah. fan of her because I thought <laughs> that would be quite creepy. Um, so, I, had, yeah, I didn't work with her much. I did a kids' show and she was doing the same, she was doing a different kids' show on the same network and we just went out for this meal. And they like, so Sophie's coming tonight. And I just, t- t- like, dead cool, I like went, oh, yeah, that's cool. In my head, I was like, oh, my God, I am <laughs> having dinner with Sophie Aldridge. And I think I, I even went as far as in my attempt to seem really cool. I think when she was sitting down, I think I said, Didn't you used to be in, um, uh, what was it, Doctor Who? <laughs> <laughs> like I barely knew. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing when I, I met Nicholas Parsons when we were in makeup once. And uh, I thought, you know, of all the great things he's done in his career, mm. the only thing I want to talk to him about was his appearance in a, you know, a BBC sci fi show in the 80s. So I kind of. Uh, I did it in exactly the same way. I was kind of like, uh, do you know, I I remember you from uh, watching a Doctor Who, I think, when I was, is that right? I'm not imagining that, have I? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, I was in that, yes. It was a lovely time, lovely time. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. He's excellent in that. Yeah, oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Uh, So there we go.
2: Where to now, Ace? Home. Home?
1: The TARDIS.
2: Yes, the TARDIS. There are worlds out there where the sky's burning, where the seas asleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Some of this danger. Some of this injustice. And somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace. We've got work to do. What? <laughs>